Okay, good, good evening everyone, and welcome to this wonderful event, this wonderful lecture that we're about to hear, and um, I, have, I have the pleasure of introducing Rabbi Ulwick, and uh, I also have the pleasure of being on a first name basis with him, which very, people, very few people are besides my immediate family, because he's my brother-in-law, and um, Rabbi Ulwick is a, a really a a world-renowned um, teacher, counselor, author, speaker. He has many great facets to his expertise in terms of marriage counseling, student counseling, student discipline. Um, he's a, a troubleshooter. He, he goes around to schools and he helps schools with all their issues. <coughs> he helps people with their, their family issues. And he teaches in a number of very prestigious schools in Israel, both girls' schools and boys' schools. So he really he, he runs the gamut of all his experience. And um, it's over 30 years that I have the claim to fame of being his brother-in-law. And that, that's my only claim to fame. And um, it's without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Rabbi Noah Fulwick. It's 35 years. I was only seven, I couldn't remember. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. All right, good evening. I, I usually uh, pass out. Actually, I don't pass out. I just. I, I, yeah. I usually distribute these handouts which are the basic moving parts of what we're going to say. But I think that tonight I have overprepared. So I don't want the uh, people to look at this and say, oh my gosh, yeah, this is going to be very long. So um, what I think I'm going to do, how many, people, how many people would like to see this? Okay? Okay. Because then I would pass out at the end and you wouldn't know what I'm skipping and not skipping. <laughs> Your questions are very important to me. There's a, uh, in my mind, the main... The main... Uh, thrust of, these, of this evening is that I am here for you and you're not here for me. So I don't feel any need to have to finish this whole long thing. I don't know what got into me when I sat down in front of the computer and like went through all of these things. I just I divided the subject into um, four parts. One is introductory concepts which I believe are true in many areas of life. The second is uh, defining what peace of mind is and what its components are. The third part is how do you get it? And what are some of the attitudes that help you achieve peace of mind? Except for the introductory concepts which I believe are basic to life, there's no philosophy here. Not that there's anything wrong with philosophy. But it's just very uh, practical. And I hope you got something out of it. Okay? 
they're not going to close the airport because of that. Right? <laughs> no, 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 that does nothing, right? No, because there's some cities in the world, like the whole city would shut down for these little white things, you know? No. Oh, okay, now it's just, I was supposed to be here Friday, and it, uh, it's not always a four letter word. So, didn't, we didn't make it. Okay. Anyway, I could, I could think of a few better places to be stuck in the world as Milwaukee. And uh, so, we're stuck here. We're stuck here. That's okay. Yeah. I've never flown Midwest Airlines, so we'll give them a grade afterwards. Okay. My definition of a genius is someone who thinks slowly, quickly. So, I'm not a genius. We're going to speak slowly, but quickly. I want to have time for your questions, but since you basically voted to have the handout in front of you, so I need to go through it. Okay, so we'll get going, okay? Sometimes we need to go in the opposite direction first. There are a lot of things in life that in order to get there first, you have to go in the opposite direction. For instance, you want to be inflexible about something. You want to put your foot down. You want to, say, dig in your heels and say, I'm not giving in. Well, in order to be able to do that without ruining the relationship, you have to be flexible many times before that. When you have developed a relationship and you've been flexible many times, then you can allow yourself sometimes to be inflexible, going the opposite direction. Speech. It's in order to be worth listening to, in order to be worth having something to say, you have to keep your mouth shut for a long time. You know, I think uh, biologically, uh, a nursing mother has to drink about five times as much as she gives out. A person who speaks should have his mouth shut for a long time. In, in, in Jewish thought, so the reason we have two ears and one mouth is because supposed to think you're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. You're supposed to be quiet. This, these two pieces, these two sheets of paper, are decades of thinking. Now, I'm not saying it's all straight thinking. You have to tell me. Maybe it's crooked. But it was thought about. This was not pulled out of my sleeve. So, and building skyscrapers. You want the taller the building you want to build, the, dip, the deeper you have to dig down first. There are many things that you have to go in the opposite direction first. Now, this is a subject in itself. We have to understand that each of these points is a subject in itself. The ability to do this lay in the ability to see a big picture. I can't go backwards unless I see a big picture and realize it's going to take me forwards. So, but that's the first point. And we're going to apply each of these points to our subject. So first we go back before we go forward. The relatedness of stability, intrinsicality, connectedness, and truth. The only thing that you truly have is you. Wherever you go, wherever you take yourself, the surroundings change. You don't. It's very important to remember that when we talk about quiet, we are not talking necessarily or ideally about external quiet. The way to internal quiet is to have a paradigm 
an experience of, of external quiet, but you're not supposed to stay there. When I was uh, went past uh, Lake Michigan, so I said to myself, I'd like to sit here a while, but of course there was no time. But when I go to uh, beautiful parts of the world, I ask to be taken to places and to be left there for hours. A year ago, I was in Santiago, Chile. I did some speaking engagements there. And I asked to be taken to the Andes. And one of the people there is a student of mine. He drove me up to the, I think it's the 42nd curve. They count by how many turns there is. The 42nd turn is supposed to be a very good view. And he left me there for several hours. And I looked at the cloud for a couple of hours. And the ability... And some of you may be familiar with this, but the ability to internalize, integrate all of your senses in a quiet setting, I touch the snow, listen to the quiet, the stillness, and watch, and feel the wind on your face for hours. It's worth it. Because then you can go back there. This is a very powerful idea in itself when you have a moment with a loved one, a moment of clarity, freeze it by internalizing, integrating into your senses all that is has been going on around you. So when you pull out of your memory, that moment, the inspiration comes out also. Because if not, if you don't do that, then the inspiration is a memory, but it can never again be part of your present. You have to relive something in order to feel the emotion, because the emotion only knows the present. But when you pull the past into your present, and you relive it, it's here again, then you can have the emotion. One of my memories is trudging down Westchester Avenue in the snow to meet my mother-in-law for the first time with my kala, and it was a very good feeling. It was an, an amazing feeling. And you feel it. You feel everything. You feel the, the, all of your senses. That's what you carry around with you. You have to internalize your quiet. If we want to master this subject, you have to have quiet moments outside. Outside is also quiet, but you have to internalize it, or else you can't really maintain achieve peace of mind unless you have the paradigm of quiet and put it inside of you. Because things don't always stay quiet. My uh, defining concentration. Uh, my definition for concentration is your ability to carry your quiet around with you. Wherever I am, for me it's quiet. Doesn't matter if it's noisy for everybody else. For me it's quiet. What's happiness? Happiness is the ability to carry your music around with you. We all have to play music. Music is very important. All lot of kinds of music. There's a face of a child, face of a loved one's music. I was just listening to Mozart on a treadmill. That's also music, but it's a more common form of music. It's very good music. But music is supposed to do something for you. And when you carry your music around with you, then you don't need the external world to play the music for you. The root of all definitions are is inside of you. Who are you? Not what's going on around you. What's going on around you is not is not stable. The world out there is not a stable place. The world is always falling apart. Anyone knows any chemistry? 
this whole world is strings that are stuck together. And depending on the bonding, that's how stable it's going to be. But nothing is really, really stable. Now, number four, and number four, the, the next points are very important. And then we'll get to the main body of our subject. But again, these points themselves are keys to a successful life. We have two great enemies that assault and threaten our ability to make correct decisions in life. One is surprise, and the other is laziness. Healthy human beings have two parts to them. They have an emotional quotient and an intellectual quotient. The heart and the mind. In Jewish thinking, this is uh, the sun and the moon. The sun is stable. The amount of time it shines may vary depending on the season, but the sun's the sun. The moon changes. The moon goes up and down. The emotion goes up and down. And that's healthy. You know, an EKG measures a heart. The heart, well, an EKG is a straight line, means you're dead. It's okay for uh, emotion to go up and down. It's supposed to go up and down. Not like that. But it's supposed to go up and down, that's right. The intellect is stable. Two plus two is four, whether you're depressed or not. <laughs> The enemy of the intellect is laziness. Work through the question. Think through the pros and cons. Work it out. What are my goals? What are my priorities? Etc., etc. Think. Laziness of mind is an enemy of the intellect. And surprise is the enemy of the emotion. Now, this again is a subject in itself. But the more we're able to project in advance and not be taken by surprise, so the less we are shaken, less our emotions are shaken. Today, I go to airports. I have a disease called airport-itis. And, you know, anything can happen. The Dutch police held me for 40 minutes because uh, I committed the great sin of losing a lot of weight. And the two the passport pictures I have two passports that didn't match. So L L Israel Airlines turned me over to the what they call in Brooklyn, the cops. And I sat there for forty minutes till I figured out that I wasn't a terrorist. Yeah? I mean I think. Yeah. I came to uh, St. Louis Airport and I'm there by checking on the curbside check-in. He says to me, did you pack your bags? This is a few years ago. I said, no, she did. Yeah? Mrs. Howley. Everybody knows who Dr. Howley is. He used to live in St. Louis. Now he lives in Cleveland. Yeah? The guy didn't know what to do. No one had ever said to him that they didn't pack the bags. It's the first time. <laughs> so he went inside to, to, to the counter over there at TWA. Which stands for the worst airline. <laughs> stands for, and the finally, you know, and the the lady there didn't know what to do with her. They went into the bowels of TWA, and they finally came out with the decision that since he didn't pack his bags, he can't answer any questions about the bags. Well, he will have to X-ray the bags, you know. Well, by then the plane was getting, you know, by then I was, I was getting late for my plane. I wasn't expecting that to happen. So now, you, you never know. 
I'm not talking about pessimism. I'm talking about just, you know, just be ready. It doesn't throw you off. The moving parts of stress. Now, solutions is think it through and project. But the, we talk about stress. Obviously, if we're talking about peace of mind, we're talking about the opposite of stress. What are the moving parts of stress? Stress has three moving parts to it. One is, I have to do it, I have to do it now, and I have to do it perfectly. So now, I only know of one time in recorded history that that happened. There was a fellow named Armstrong that took off from the moon in a lunar module. And he had a dock with a command module. He had one shot at it. If he didn't make it, so he would become the first moon around the moon. That's what's going to happen to him. And he's like watching his uh, the computer tell him everything is fine. We're docking. Everything is great. He wasn't so sure. He had to take a, a split-second decision. Is he going to abort the computer and dock manually? Or is he going to let the computer go on its merry way and hopefully be okay? So he aborted the computer and he docked himself and that was fine. That was the only time in recorded history that I could think of that you got to do it, you got to do it now, and you got to do it perfectly. No, that has never happened before or after, as far as I know. So anybody who's, who's uh, planning on getting into a lunar module in the next couple of weeks, so ignore everything I have to say. You understand? Like, who says you have to do everything perfectly now? So attacking any one of those points will lower your stress. <coughs> Perfection versus perfectionism. The North Pole. Now, there's a book by Stephen Covey called First Things First. I didn't get it from there. I, I got it first. Maybe Covey got it from me. I don't know. There's a thing called the North Pole. A place called the North Pole is a compass. What's a compass? A compass tells you where the North Pole is. What direction is the North Pole? Like, why would anyone want to go to the North Pole for? Any travel brochures you see about the, the natives and the weather and the scenery, it's all lies. Unless you're flying from Vienna to Los Angeles so you have no reason to go over to the North Pole it's a, there's a route hopefully there's no engine trouble so what do you have a compass for? the answer is I'm going to Montreal I'm going to Saskatoon I need to know what, what the, it's a directional perfection is a directional it's not a place you get to it's a point of reference this is very important for peace of mind. Because if i got to be perfect, then you know, you're living in the wrong world. It's not a perfect world. A perfectionist, my definition of a perfectionist, is someone who can't separate how good they are from how well they do. You know something? And if you only get a 95, you're only a 95% person, that's pretty terrible. <clears throat> so understand that things are not meant to be perfect. Perfection is just a point of reference. In Paris, they have a bar exactly one, liter, one meter long. Why? It's in case you're in Turkey and you're buying some cloth and he says it's a meter and you're not sure if he's telling the truth or not, you can take a plane to Paris, line it up to the bar and see if it's really a meter, a meter, a meter or not. 
That's what it states. It's a point of reference. Perfection is a point of reference. We don't get there. Two types of perfections, two measures of success. There's two types of perfection. One is accomplishment. How many people did you help? How many smiles did you put on a face today? How many hospitals did you build? How, how, how many, what difference did you make to how many people? And the other is, internally, how hard did you try? What was your, what, did you put out your best effort? It, a person whose only measure of success is how much is not going to have peace of mind. Because, you know something? There's always somebody else who did more. Points of reference for peace of mind must be internal. I just did a, a tour in England and there was a, a world-class uh, athlete, runner, or cyclist who said, he's still training, he broke all the world records already. They said, what are you training for? He says, world records don't mean anything to me. It's personal best that matters to me. I want to better my own personal best. My point of reference and my success or not is dependent only upon who I am, not on who you are. If you want to have peace of mind, you have to know you cannot run a race against anybody in this world. There's only one of you on this planet. Only one of you will ever be like you in this world. Don't measure yourself based on anybody else. And what do you want? Responsibility versus control. We need to know that we are responsible for things that are in our control and not responsible for things that are not in our control. I come to the, my, on my tours. I have, very, I have very crowded, long days. I have no stress. Why? I, you know, I have no idea where I am, by the way. I know I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and that's about it. I don't know how to get to anywhere where I need to go. I trust that there are benevolent people here who will take care of me. I was in Mexico City when we're there and we're driving. It's one some wonderful people, but it's an interesting place. Red lights in Mexico City are advice. <laughs> we, we suggest that you stop. You don't have to stop. Yeah? So he says to me, we're late. I said, no, you're late. I'm not late. I have no idea where I am in it. Yeah? You know Tengo Prisa. I'm not in a hungry. I'm not, I'm not in a hurry. Tengo. It's fine. Everything is fine. Because I have no control. I have no responsibility. What you have responsibility for is what you have control over. And the thing that you have most control over in your life is what's going to go on in your mind. How are you going to choose to look at something? Therefore... Therefore, that's what you have most responsibility for. How am I going to look at things? Whether it's an airplane delay. You know, I was sitting on the one runway over there in Cleveland. It snows in Cleveland in the winter, by the way. <laughs> and we're about to take off. Well, one, co- one plane from the to take off, and the plane in front of us develops engine trouble. It can't turn, which is a problem. <laughs> yeah. So they say we have to go to a different runway. Go to a different runway. By that time, they closed the airport for seven hours. I was in the, in Cleveland Airport. No problem at all. 
I found out that I have a lot of friends in the world because they had to reroute me from Philadelphia where I was originally going to go to, uh, to Newark. In, mom- in minutes, I had several people who were happy to drive me from Newark to Lakewood. And it was worth it just for that. So, understand that you're responsible for what you have control over. These are introductory ideas that are related to peace of mind, but they are subjects in themselves and they are keys to many, many areas of life. Some people hear me speak uh, or listen to my tapes. You know, there's a lot of repetition. You know why? I do not seek to be a complicated program to run. You know what my definition of a successful parent is? Someone who makes him or herself obsolete as quickly as possible. I don't need for my child to need me. I don't need for my student to need me. So if I can make a program uncomplicated and my child can say, I know what daddy would say, or my student would say, I know, I know what my teacher would say, then I'm a success. So a lot of these things repeat themselves. Now let's let's just take a look at the subject. What is peace of mind? I want to give a definition. We know peace of mind is emotional and physical. Now what I mean over here is in Jewish tradition, one of the great uh, teachers, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, said that we think that peace of mind is related to being physically at rest, at peace. Says that's not true. The more you need to have quiet, comfort, surround, and perfect surroundings in order to be have peace of mind, the less likely you're going to have it. I fly too much because how do I know? El Al sends me New Year cards, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and actually stewardesses have have begun to remember me. This is a problem. Even though I knew she was wrong, which says you like uh, scotch or you know like bloody mirror. She says now you got me mixed up with somebody else. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's not me. It's not me. Yeah. So I get upgraded a lot. Sometimes I will make sure to buy a ticket that you cannot upgrade. Why? It's important to sit and coach once in a while. You can't get used to business class. Because if you get used to it, it's called getting spoiled. And then you can't fly coach. It's a terrible thing to have to fly business. The more luxuries you need in order to feel at peace, the less likely you are that you're going to have it. I'll give you an example. I've been told that this is scientifically true. I'm not sure. I've been saying this for years. Theoretically, you should be able to invent a machine called the pleasureometer. What's a pleasureometer? Something must go on in the, in the, physically in the body when a person's having pleasure, whether it's skin te- temperature, or something must be going on. And you attach two people to a pleasureometer. One, in order for the needle to hit 10, has to have a 10-course meal on exquisite china, done to perfection, with Mozart in the background. Or, no, no, Beethoven also. Yeah? If you can't get Mozart. Or Rossini. Yeah? Now, the stuff they call today music is like, you know, let's, you know, we won't go into that now. But it had nothing to do with peace of mind, that's for sure. Yeah? 
<laughs> so if you have all of that, the needle will hit 10. His pleasureometer needle will hit 10. And you have another guy, he has toast, butter, and hot cocoa. And the pleasureometer hits 10. From that, who's having more pleasure? They're having the same amount of pleasure. The pleasureometer says it's hitting 10. Who's much more fortunate? The one that's just the cocoa and, 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 and toast. Because it, it can happen much more, it's much more likely to keep happening. So when you settle down in a coach seat and you feel comfortable, you feel comfortable. You're a lucky man, a lucky woman. You don't need the business class seat. I have someone who comes in twice a week to torture me. You call him a trainer, a personal trainer. Yeah? He told me he was in, a, in an elite unit in the Israeli army. They sent him to Africa for training. And he's there with his, you know, goggles and his and his shoes, special shoes, and all kinds of paraphernalia. And this African fellow is leading them through the jungle. He he's barefoot and he has a stick. And that's it. He's barefoot and a stick. Doesn't need anything else. He's probably more comfortable than they are. This is a very important point. Don't get used to things. Things are luxuries and they should stay so. Now, luxuries have a function. It's not really my subject tonight, but I want to just impart to you that a luxury... What's the function of a luxury? Why why did God create luxuries? Everything in the world is functional, right? In, In 19... How many people here have tonsils? Okay. When, and, and in 1953, I had my tonsils out. He told the doc, I remember the doctor telling me that I really don't need to have my tonsils out, but since my brother was having his out, and you have your sore throats also, we'll have yours out also. Yalla. Why? Because tonsils were, uh, what do you call it, a vestigial organ. You don't, we don't really need tonsils anymore. When we're hanging by our tails, in the jungle 500 million years ago, then we needed tonsils. But now we don't need tonsils anymore. <laughs> Why? Why don't we need tonsils? Because we don't know what they're for. Yeah? Since we don't know what they're for, they must be for nothing. Which is like, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Somebody. So I took my tonsils out. The pituitary gland used to be on that list. And I'm sure glad they didn't take out my pituitary gland. Because my, you know, might as well, you know, save money. <laughs> everything in God's world has a function one of the signs of a creator is that nothing is extra like this this machine over here which I have no idea how to run yeah you know I'm a very wise rabbi and I know there's no extra parts in this how do I know because I river this is a thing it's a company I don't know well they don't, there's nothing here, I'm sure, that's not, that isn't necessary, and that means it was made by somebody. The only thing left in the body that they, the doctors, that should live and be well, say is uh, uh, vestigial is the appendix. I brought my daughter in for, uh, um, she had that turned out to have an appendix, uh, appendoctin, an appendoctin, but I knew that as soon as they took her into the, 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 
into the upper operating room. One day they'll take her into the living room. Also, but not, you know, she's only 13. <laughs> we got time for that. In Mexico, the girls get married at 16. So, you know, it's not that much longer the way. They were going to take it out anyway. Even when they opened her up, the appendix was okay. They were going to take it out anyway to rule it out in the future. If everything in God's world is, is functional, what's the function of a luxury? Luxury is by definition non-functional, right? I don't need it. What's the function? God created luxuries in the world. Like apples. Cold, red apples. Ah! It's luxury. You can't live without it. You know what the function of a luxury is? A luxury is a message from God, I love you. I give you things you don't, you don't, you don't have to have. But we should have most of the things in our life should be luxuries. Because then we get a lot of messages. Not that many things should be necessities. The more necessities you have, then the more fragile your peace of mind is. And that's what that means here. Emotional and physical. Scatteredness of the mind, the opposite of peace of mind. There's a Jewish saying that there's no peace of mind, no peace like peace of mind, and there's no scatteredness like the scatteredness of the mind. That's an unbalanced statement. Unless peace of mind also means focus of mind. So one of the first things we're going to be learning is that we have to be able to focus in order to have peace of mind. You have to be able to concentrate. You have to be able to focus on something. If your mind is scattered, then you can't have peace of mind. So now we're beginning to get a definition of peace of mind. Peace of mind is the ability. We all have many and varied and conflicting things going on in our souls. Do we have the ability to drive all of them out except for one thing and focus on that? That's peace of mind. When something is at peace, is at rest. And I can think about what I want to think about and not have a constant chorus of noise competing for my attention. This is a definition, a paradigm of peace of mind. Therefore, if you will learn how to focus, you have come a long way in learning peace of mind. The ability to focus on what we're doing now and the internet and multitasking. There's a thing called email. Now, you're going to think that I'm a wild-eyed reactionary. You know, email is dangerous. You know what email is teaching people? To respond off-handedly to people. You don't bother capitalizing, spelling properly, punctuating. Here is my answer. You know, we used to sit, once a long time ago, there used to be a thing called the pen and the paper. And you sat down, and you made an attempt to make yourself clear. I'm not a graphologist, but a great graphologist once told me that one of the ways we measure a person's a person's ability to teach is by how clear and legible his handwriting is. Because a teacher is someone who strives to make himself clear. If your handwriting is like straight out of medical school, then you know you're not going to. There's a good chance you're not going to be a good teacher. So you take the time to control your hand to write in a way in your personalized signature a message to someone. But when you send somebody an electronic message, that's what it is, an electronic message. Now I'm talking about a very sensitive point. This is not uh, it's something you need to think about. 
we are learning to respond offhandedly as a, as a way of life. And you know something? You should not respond offhandedly to people. They, have, they deserve your respect. They deserve the thought that, that comes with the response. Uh, one, a, a great Jew, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Volba, said in, in a similar sense, the advent of, of digital clocks is doing something to humanity. It used to be, you have a clock there, it's an analog clock. It tells you how much time is left. How much time has gone by. Time is a resource. How much of it have I spent already? How much of it is left? A digital clock just tells you how much, what time it is now. The sense of time is going lost. This is insidious. It's slow. It, 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 it'll take maybe several decades until people lose track of time as a commodity. But that's not our subject. But when we multitask... Now, I, I, I came to England. I've been in England many times. And I, I personally... You know, I have a driver's license. It has no violations on it. Since 1976. Anybody here can claim having, having a license for 30 years with no violations? I do. What's my secret? I don't drive. <laughs> the license is still current. I don't drive. So yeah, I'm sensitive to different things, such as talking on a cell phone while you're driving. It's dangerous. Yeah? A car is a dangerous weapon. Yeah? So you don't talk on a cell phone. And by the way, the speakerphones, scientifically, there have been studies have shown it does not help that much as far as raising, you know, as far as the concentration. So I said to them, I don't want anyone speaking on the, on, on the cell phone when they're driving me to Manchester this time. Usually, so a different rabbi used to take me, and he was always on, he was on the phone. So this time they hired a professional driver in a, with a, an executive car, and everything was fine except, and he didn't speak on the phone, he spoke on two phones. <laughs> <laughs> But I felt safe. This this man, like he like he could drive in his sleep. So he, he knew what he was doing. When we multitask, when we multitask, what we are doing is sending someone a message that you I am not giving you my full attention. And that is related to the quality of our response, but more than that, and more deeply than that. It's related to the quality of my relationship to you. When I don't give you my full attention, so it's, it, it's a lack of respect. Now let's say I don't need to give you my full attention. I, I think the last time I ever judged somebody was in 1976. Now I, I believe, I believe I have disconnected the wire in my head that judges people. I recommend that. And this, I was teaching a, 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 an eighth grade class, an eighth grade class, and this boy was sitting there. He had this blank look on his face. So I thought that he was like, you know, he wasn't like really that bright. He was not catching what's going on until he opened his mouth. This boy was so intelligent. All he needed to understand me was point oh 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 one percent of his brain, and that's all he gave me. <laughs> He had this blank look on his face because he was busy doing a whole lot of other things while this, you know, rabbi was saying all the simple stuff. He opened his mouth and like, oh, he had what to say. It still doesn't taste good. You go to a doctor, yeah? And the doctor has the diagnosis in 20 seconds. 
and he's right. You know, there's a book called Blink. Anybody here heard of this book, Blink? It's an amazing little book. Uh, so they had over there a study of which doctors are most likely to get sued. Yeah? And they did video clips, very 10-second, 30-second video clips, because the insurance companies want to know which of their doctors, which doctors are more likely to get sued. It's important for them to know that. It came out that the doctors who devoted another 15, 20, 30 seconds to the patient to, to listen to their questions, to explain things a little more carefully, the, the suing rate went way down. Because they look at me, pay attention to me. Focus on me. It's plain, simple respect. And that translated into what well, these people willing to sue. So, in all these things, internet, you can't, you can't, when you surf something, so then you can't, your mind gets used to constantly moving around, and you can't focus. So we need to learn that these things are going to take away from our peace of mind. Because the peace of mind is the ability to focus. To stop and think about one thing and one thing only. Now, what are the components of peace of mind? Which mountains I need climbing means which I need to climb, identifying what I can and cannot do. You know, there are two kinds of problems. There's problems I can solve and problems I can't solve. There's a nursery rhyme. I think it's over here. Yeah, and the other page, attitudes that bring results and some conclusions. There's a nursery rhyme. I, it's the only thing I make my students memorize. Yeah, you can hear it again. <coughs> yeah. For every ailment under the sun, there's a remedy or there's none. If there's one, find it. If there's none, never mind it. A problem you cannot solve is not your problem. Not your problem. Yeah, I'm saying, what are you people are sitting here for? There's a fellow in Tehran. Why don't you just get on a plane with an M1 rifle? When you land in Tehran, say, where is this guy? Yeah, I want to blow his brains out. <coughs> You're not going to get very far, you know that? I don't recommend that you do that. Yeah? If you can't, there's nothing you can do about it except pray. Most, someone who could do something about it, please don't sit here anymore and do something about it. Go! But right now, there's not much we can do about it. Not my problem. I can forget about it. You can go to sleep when there are problems. I, just, I, I gave a three-hour a three workshop on problem solving at a convention several years ago. The person who was giving the session before me was on the other side of the room. She hadn't finished speaking. So I sat down by the table and I went to sleep. I went to sleep. I actually went to the Andes or the Pacific Coast Road. There are places I go to. Of course, I can come back. Yeah, because if you can't come back, we call that insanity. <laughs> and I waited until she finished. And I told the, the teachers and principals gathered there, you have just had your first visual aid on problem solving. Something you could do nothing about is not your problem. Like, forget about it. So you have to know which mountain you need to climb. So, D, I'm not alone. If you ask me, the single greatest gift you can give a child is the knowledge that he or she is never alone. Never alone. There's always somebody up there with a capital S who's holding your hand. And that, that lowers stress. <coughs> that lowers stress. 
It says Avram was called Avram Ivri. Abraham the Ivri. What does Ivri mean? He stood on one side of the world and the and the rest of the world was on the other he stood on one side and the rest of the world was on the other side. That's what our, our sages teach us. But you know something? I make a slight <coughs> comment on that, and that is Abraham and God stood on one side of the world and the rest of the world is on the other side. Oh, that's different. A person has to know they're never alone. I know a, a, a Jew uh, in Jerusalem. He lived to 100. His name was Ablazin Nanis. He wrote a book called Sabota. Uh, he was in Siberia from 1937 to 1957 for the uh, sin of uh, observing Torah, keeping Shabbos, doing all kinds of counter-revolutionary things like that. And he, he recounts that when the KGB you know, interrogated him, they were not nice to him. He had a picture of his father in his mind's eye, right here next to him, saying to him, don't be afraid, there's nothing they can do to you. And there was nothing they could do to him. There was nothing they could... The worst they could do to him is separate his body from his soul. But, and they didn't do that, but they, they could have at any time. But they can't, he had his father there. He wasn't alone. This man was not afraid of anybody. In his late 90s, he said he left the door open at night. He did, I mean, once you, once you have faced down the KGB, it's all downhill after that. Like, if nobody can scare you. And they, they, they were unsuccessful. So, you're not alone. To see, I still have something right in my life. As long as, a year ago, in Toronto Airport, Toronto, that's the name for Toronto, that's what I said, I think, something like that. In Toronto, so, so LL, so, twice delayed our departure to Tel Aviv by 12 hours. That's a total of 24 hours delay. And I was supposed to go to Johannesburg the next day. Turns out I have to go the same day. From even for me, from Toronto to Johannesburg, without stopping, that's 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 a lot. That's a lot. I did go from from uh, Melbourne to Auckland to Los Angeles to Newark, which is twenty nine and a half hours, and that was fine. This is, I think, a bit longer. It's longer. So anyway, I said to the LR representative, I said to him, look, you know. My wife still likes me. As long as my wife likes me, everything's okay. Everything's a perspective. As long as. Not the as long as should be as long as God likes me. But a person has to know that there is nothing in life that everything is riding on. So calm down. Enjoy the ride. Never is everything riding on something. Being con- a person to be connected to something to have peace of mind you have to be connected to something even the billionaire bachelor has his money human beings have to trust in something you cross the street the light says it's green, it's green the light says you can, you can go or there's a pedestrian crosswalk yeah in Israel pedestrian crosswalks are street decorations. <laughs> okay? Sort of like traffic lights in, in Rome. It's a street decorator. Sometimes they're red, sometimes they're green. It's a decoration. You cannot expect the person to stop. They don't stop. But in most places in the world, we trust that we walk in front of the driver, he's not going to accelerate at that moment. I trust him. I, I was asked to give a, a class on how to deal with children who were afraid of earthquakes in Los Angeles. 
I was in an aftershock. He's sitting in the car there and the whole thing places the whole street is moving. And I said, Well and he says, Oh, it's only an aftershock. It's only an aftershock. It's very scary. Earthquakes are scary. Why are earthquakes so frightening? I had to give a class in Johannesburg about children who were afraid of carjackings, or what they call hijackings. It's a scary thing to, to be taken out of a car at gunpoint and they're going to decide whether they're going to shoot you or not. And there's nothing you can do about it. Most wonderful people in the world in Joburg. Most wonderful people in the world. The city is um, it's interesting. An earthquake is frightening because the thing you depend on the most is terra firma. When that doesn't hold you, that's a big fright. Well, everyone has to be connected to something. Everyone has to be able to depend on something. Your peace of mind is going to be as stable and as strong as that which you depend on. That means, really, the thing that you must depend on is God. Nothing else in the world is stable. Nothing. <coughs> totally stable. No. We need positive feedback from ourselves and the best case scenario from Hashem, from God. And we have to have meaning. Peace of mind is related to how meaningful this is to me. When I do something that's not meaningful to me, I cannot have peace of mind. Do you know why? Because I need to move on to something else. I need to keep doing other things. And that gets us to the next part. And you know, we actually may get this done. I hope this done. I've been speaking for... I shouldn't tell you. I hope it didn't feel that long. But we're almost done. Are there any questions so far? Huh? Getting peace of mind. Find meaning in the moment. True meaning is related to how long... And for, for how long will this affect me? Or affect my loved one? Or affect anyone? For how long will it last? Did you know that the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl for two years in a row? Did you know that? And this is so quiet. <laughs> and did you know that the Boston Red Sox beat the New York Yankees four games to three two years ago? Huh? They came back from a three to nothing lead. Why? Now, even in New York, that would elicit well, that would elicit even in Boston, that would elicit silence. Today. Then So it, it must not have been that meaningful. Don Lawson pitched a perfect game in nineteen fifty six World Series. Did you know that? Anybody remember that? Yeah? Remember Willie Mays' catch in the fifty four World Series? It was, it was pitiful. <laughs> yeah? What he did to the Cleveland Indians. It's playing hard, playing fevery. It was in the stands that the ball. Yeah, that's the Today, 1954 was 52 years ago, gosh. I remember when it happened. If not, it must not be that meaningful because it, 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 it's not, it's not, its effect is not permanent. Meaning is related to how permanent something is. That's why... A person who has a trust in God and believes in a next world can have true meaning because then things are permanent. But if you don't believe in another existence that the soul carries on, then everything is limited liability. 
Everything is limited to what it's, how much of an impact it could have. Because, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. Because, anyway, you know, it ends. But we believe that there's eternity. That there's such a thing as a soul that continues to exist afterwards. People who have meaning can have peace of mind. And meaning is related to how this impact my priorities. Now here we're going to going in the opposite direction. Remember we started tonight by saying going in the opposite direction first? There's an example of this. Let me say now. What I'm doing now, <coughs> how much does it affect the rest of my life? In order to have focus, in order to concentrate, in order to have peace of mind, which we said is a function of focusing, has to be meaningful to me. How do I know if it's meaningful or not? So I first take a big picture of my life, a big reading, and then I say, this piece is related to the rest of my life, now I can separate it from the rest of my life and focus on it. But first I have to to go in the opposite direction, which is attached to the big picture. Where does it fit in? Is it meaningful? And then detach it from the big picture and focus on it now. Number three, stop before you do something. Whether it's prayer, you know, you come into to Davin. Stop for a few moments. Say, you know, I'm about to do something. Before you walk into your house, one of my great teachers, Rav Shlomo blessed memory, said, you know what the definition of a home is? A home is a base medrash for chesed. What does that mean? A home is a study in, in kindliness. A home is defined as a place where kindliness is practiced. From husband to wife, from wife to husband, from parent to child. Not from child to parent. <laughs> you know my definition, one of my definitions of a baby is someone who's willing to wake up a continent if he has a tickle in his throat. The whole continent is exhausted like bone toy, a hard day at the rice fields. We're exhausted. And this kid needs three drops of water. You know what he's going to do? That's what he's going to do. Who cares about everybody else? Me! Me, myself, and I. That's a baby. But because a baby is like that, that's why a home is a study in kindliness. Mothers get up in the middle of the night, they stumble through, you know, to the, to, to, into the kid's room, and this kid is very ungrateful. Very ungrateful. Doesn't even say thank you. Yeah? But you do it anyway. It's kindliness. It's loving kindliness. So before you walk into your house, you stop and you realize you change house now. Now I'm selling vacuum cleaners. But now I'm doing something else. Now I'm busy putting smiles on the people who live in this abode. (coughs) Prayer is a training ground. Prayer is a way of learning focus because right now I'm just doing this I stand before God I am not permitted to do anything else it's not respectful seeing the details and everything I have a bit of a uh, an exercise in in uh, can I borrow your pen please for a moment Thank you. This looks to you like an uncomplicated implement. How many details are on this uh, in this uh, on the surface of this pen? 
some people say 5, 10, 15. There's at least 40 or 50. At least. Starting from, first of all, the color. Yeah, I, I would I, you know, I would take an educated guess that this this pen does not write red or black or green. Probably it writes blue. Why? Because the person who created this, or maybe devolved over a few million years, yeah, it's it, it said the color of the ink, probably. There's a font, the type of font. You know how many fonts you could have, and different fonts have different characteristics. There's the spacing between the letters. There's the size of the letters. There's the tapering of the tip. There's tapered. There's tapered. A few, there's four, one, two, three, four, five, five tapers going down to the bottom. And then there's the spring. And there, whoa! How did the the, the um, this is done to perfection? It's not too hard to lift, but it's strong. And we go on and on about the the marvels of a ballpoint. My brother told me. My brother is. Um, let's see how many. He's 65. I'm his kid brother. Yeah? He's, he's a lefty. Now, he said ballpoint... He told me this last week. Ballpoint pen saved him. Why? Because in elementary school, he was learning how to write, so he wrote with his left hand. And ballpoint pens, uh, fountain pens, so it's wet. So his hand would always go over. So he used to have to write like that. You know? But his hand, this is ballpoint pen saved him. <coughs> you know what the amazing thing a ballpoint pen is? Now, if you take this apart, and no, I'm not going to take it apart, don't worry. But I'm just saying, the ability to do this, to feel the, the degree of the taper, and, this, and, 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 and the strength in, in, the, in the spring, yeah? How much effort I need to hold it down, to keep it down. All of these details, when I learn to do something like this, relatively uncomplicated. Do you know something? When I do this, I am focusing. I am fo- willy nilly. If they still say that, yeah, I am focusing. I am looking at something. When I learn, thank you. When I learn to look at details of something, I am training myself to focus, to notice, and to see, and to think about one thing. The components of concentration, besides sleep and diet, nothing will help if you don't get enough sleep. There's no peace of mind if you don't sleep. Okay, let's forget it. I should have said that first. And diet, if you have a lot of white sugar, you know, now, even though I fly a lot, I'm actually afraid of heights. God has a sense of humor. Yeah? And I've never been on a roller coaster in my life. But why would I want to pay somebody money to torture me? I was in London... And I was with my son, and I was playing tourist for a couple of days. And we got into a simulator. Oh gosh! <laughs> you know, I know it's just a simulator, but it's still quite frightening. You know, to almost crash into a into a wall and like go way up. I promised myself I'd never do this again. Yeah, I did it the next day in the science museum. That was in the RAF museum in Hendon. I would, why, would I, why would I get on a roller coaster? But there are people who enjoy roller coasters. Five minutes, attendance. How about seven hours? How about two days? How about a month on a roller coaster? That's not fine. 
Well, that's exactly what your life is like when you when you eat food that picks you up and then drops you. And then when it, it drops you, you have to get another pickup. There's a relationship between what you eat and how you eat and your peace of mind. And that's the plain truth. Now, there are four... This is... Um, a research cardiologist asked me, this man is a genius at heart scans. He doesn't have a private practice. <coughs> but he asked me to construct for him a program on how to concentrate. Now, I'm putting this as a subject in itself. I'm going to be finishing soon. <coughs> Peace of mind is related to the ability to concentrate. The ability to concentrate can be broken up. He's a research person. And he likes things in, you know, in, in his components. There are four ways of measuring your concentration quotient. One is for how long can you think about something. The second is the difficulty of the subject that you could focus on. Third is the surroundings you're in. Is it noisy or is it quiet? And are you interested in it? So for instance, a person wants to take uh, sit in Grand Central Station in New York or <coughs> Queen's Cross in uh, the underground in London and read Beowulf or Canterbury Tales yeah which is difficult for them they're not interested in it it's a noisy surrounding they're not going to get very far take first the quiet surroundings in something that you're interested in that's reasonably easy and see how long you can go and when you can go a little bit longer, take something a little more difficult. In other words, vary these, these different variables. Okay, attitudes that bring results in some conclusions. A vital nursery rhyme we did. Of course, you all know it by heart now. Yeah? For every ailment under the sun, there's a remedy or there's none. If there's one, find it. If there's none, never mind it. Also notice what's right. This sofa in the corner. You want to have peace of mind? I want to give you a, a very short, practical piece of advice. Habituate yourself to notice what's right also. I remember there's a situation where a husband and wife were not really getting along so well. He, he said she can't keep a clean house. Now, she had seven kids in about three rooms. And, you know, okay, but she can't keep a clean house. So there was a sofa in the corner. And the sofa had three pillows on it. So I asked the lady, you know, there were geological layers of half-eaten sandwiches, unfolded laundry, broken toys on, on these pillows. Can you shove all the stuff that's on one of the pillows onto the other <coughs> pillow? And that pillow should once again see the light of day. Yeah? She can do that. So I said, do that. And then when uh, the husband, when you come home, look at the corner of the room, look at the pillow and say, she did that for me. I just gave you very good advice. Notice what's right. Something is right, notice it. Give it its due. It'll give you peace of mind. Things bother you, things disturb you, that's okay, but now let's see what's right about it. A child comes home and complains about a teacher. You can't put scotch tape on the kid's mouth. He has to be able to talk. But I want you to tell me what the teacher did right today also. There's always something good. There's always something right that you can nurture and that you can and you can savor. And that can give you peace of mind. 
in each day plant years of plenty. In the Bible, it says that there were seven years of plenty in Egypt before the years of hunger began. Every day, before it gets noisy, before you walk into your house, take quiet time. Once again, the third time tonight, Mozart. He's great, he's genius. If you like uh, piano music, so I recommend Chopin. Excellent. Yeah? Sit in your car and turn off your cell phone, your mobile, just turn it off. Yeah? And just sit there and listen to the music and think about that. There are people who you're going to go into a house and it's going to matter to them whether you're happy or not. Whether you're calm, it makes a difference to them. Stop before you go in. Take quiet time. That's the years of plenty. Shopping with a bunch of kids. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you not to do it. Because that's like, you know, you know begging the point. <coughs> what you do with children is you tell them beforehand what's going to happen. Surprise is the enemy of emotion. No surprises. We're going to go buy, we'll make a list. We're going to buy poultry. We're going to buy uh, dairy products. We're going to buy fruits and vegetables. And then if you've been good, good meat is, is very specific. You're not running through the aisles, not pushing things, pulling things off the shelves, you're not screaming at anyone. If you they will go to the junk food department and we'll buy you something. Be very specific about what you're gonna buy, I'll give two choices. Not and is there anything you want here there? Yeah, he, he can have a, he'll have a nervous breakdown because he wants everything. <laughs> yeah, my son one year at the Seder, he asked he asked, you know, for the Afrikom and he said I asked him what he wants. He says, he wants the whole world. So I said, okay. Now, he trusts me. I never lie. Yeah. So I bought him a globe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what he meant. <laughs> no, but he, he learned his lesson. Yeah, he learned his lesson. And if they start making trouble, it's not a problem. You put everything back in the shelves and you walk out. And you don't come back. And the next day, you go shopping without the trial. You arrange a babysitter and you go without the child, the child will throw a fit. Yeah? And you say, you, you, you commiserate with the child, the empathetic, I'm sorry. Sorry about it. Okay? But I can't come. Yesterday, you didn't, didn't listen. And you leave. And then the next day, you say, okay, Tommy, you want to start again? Let's try again. After two or three times, the kid's going to catch on that it, this is it's real. He's a great man, a great, great man named Avi Shulman. Avi Shulman said, if you don't take control of your time, somebody else will. That's pure genius. And he said, he knows a principal that has staff meetings. Scheduled into his day, he has staff meetings. You know what a staff meeting is? Staff stands for some time away for family. Some time away for family. So his secretary says, he's at a staff meeting now. <laughs> you have to have time for the things that in the end matter the most. You know what the famous word about, from, about diets is? Manana. Manana means tomorrow. I'll start the diet tomorrow. I'll be nice to my wife starting tomorrow. She's not going to divorce me. I'll be to tomorrow. I'll start being nicer to her. I'll be nicer to my husband starting tomorrow. You start now. And being goal-oriented. Goal-oriented means what's important to me in life? What's important to me? What matters most in life to me? Get a picture of it, and very few things can shake your peace of mind. Of course, most things do not strike at the heart of, 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 your, of your life priorities.
whether uh, Milwaukee still has a has a baseball club still. Yeah, I know um, Hank Aaron. He's still there. He's still right here. That's a long time ago. <laughs> I know I'm really dating myself. Hank. That's why I got off. I, you know, Hank Aaron played for the Milwaukee uh, Braves. Braves, something like that. Yeah, Milwaukee Braves. Yeah. I wasn't around by the Boston Braves, so that's that old I'm not. There are not that many things in life that really should shake my peace of mind. And those that do, when you have peace of mind, then you handle it. Are there any questions? Yes? You had mentioned um, realizing what you can't affect and and being able to keep yourself separate from it. But when it is the concerns or feelings of another who places themselves in an unreachable position and you are caused to think about it and yet it is external to you how do you mediate that against the, that advice with adults there's a big rule with adults you can't play both sides of the net you cannot this is a very, un, very unromantic statement but it's true anyway that I cannot make someone else responsible for my happiness and I cannot be responsible for someone else's happiness. You cannot make someone responsible for something that's not in their control. You do the best you can. The best you can and then you stop. Uh, And a child? A child also. A child, uh, you, you, you set up a situation where it's most likely that the child should be happy and secure and safe uh, a child most of all needs to feel secure and that they can speak and express themselves and communicate without fear you put that in place if the child still has a problem something's wrong when you have a problem that, that defies solution you ask yourself why Maybe I'm missing a piece. Maybe, maybe, maybe I haven't looked into it carefully enough. I was told a story, very just a few days ago. True story. That is a, a ten-year-old child, nine-year-old child who had lost his mother, and the grandmother came to a PTA meeting, and the teacher said, "I don't know what to do with this child." He sits all day, he makes paper airplanes. And the grandmother broke down sobbing. She broke down crying. She said, what are you crying about? She says, the last thing this boy's mother taught him was how to make a paper airplane. And that's the way he stays connected to his mother. He makes paper airplanes. You hear? You have to find that. I remember in Jerusalem, a situation where a kid, for three years, he was at the top of his class. The four, in fourth grade, he dropped like a stone. Like, Why? They finally found out that this boy was deaf in one ear. In Jerusalem, they sit around a table like a you. So for three years, his good ear was to the teacher. The fourth year, his bad ear was to the teacher. Try and figure out why. But it's very important that problems are technical and not emotional. What can I do for you? How can I help you? Is in, in the best interest of your loved one is that you stay calm. And this is, you, you're right. This is one of the most difficult tricks to pull off, to be emotionally involved. Because you have to be emotionally involved, but still be dispassionate. That's a real balancing act. And that, if that's the spirit of your question, 
So, I don't know what to tell you. But, I will give you a line that I have been teaching my students for the last year or two, after your time, Khani. Yeah? I've been teaching them as follows. You could... You can think about how somebody else feels, or you can think about how you feel, but you can't do both at the same time. An adult will think about how the other one feels. You'll get your chance also. But when someone is not well, when someone is in distress, you put aside how you feel and you think about how they feel. To the big rule in life, you do the best you can and then you stop. Tomorrow's another day. Anything else? I hope, I pray, that someone got something out of this. Because peace of mind is something we need to have in our, in our life. And if I have to end, I'll just make one, one small point. Most of it was practical. You know, even when our loved ones are far away, we can still benefit from a hug. You could feel a hug from a loved one even when she or he is not present. We can feel hugged by God. We are beloved to Him. We are never alone. We are, we are being held. We really are being held. And that is really the bottom line essence of peace of mind. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Ulrich. And um, Rabbi Ulrich has written three books, and the books are available in the hall out there. We only have sample copies. If anyone is interested in signing up for the books, we'll get the books to you um, in, a, in a couple of weeks or in a week or so. And uh, thank you so much for the tools for life that you taught us. And everyone is welcome to stay around and talk to Rabbi Ulrich or socialize and to take part in some of the refreshments. I'll have to see you again soon.